Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis Fourteenth, and this is our final A-side episode of the year. It's our second Katy Perry episode. Before we get into Katy, I'm going to keep my remarks up top really brief. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Really appreciate everybody doing that. Follow us on social at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. And check out the Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes of this episode. Check out our merch in our store at poppantheonpod.com. And, of course, please join our Patreon, patreon.com slash poppantheon. We have a new episode up right now that is a conversation between me and the wonderful Owen Myers, who was on our Spice Girls episode and our Charlie XCX Crash episode, where he and I are digging into SZA's long-awaited sophomore album, SOS, which came out last week. Owen and I are breaking down all the themes, all our favorite lyrics, what makes SZA so singular, how we feel about this record as a data dump versus an actual album that we're supposed to consume as a whole, how this positions her commercially moving forward, all of our favorite moments, all the genres she's exploring here. It's such a dense and fascinating album, and this conversation was so much fun to have with Owen. And as a treat after this episode... When the song ends at the end, I am going to include a little clip from our Patreon episode about SZA's SOS. And if you like what you hear and you want to hear the rest of it, you can subscribe, as I mentioned, at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. So without further ado, here is our episode on Katy Perry Part 2. This is obviously the sequel to last week's episode, Katy Perry Part 1. Definitely think if you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to it. We're going to pick up here in the wake of the Teenage Dream album, talk about the bonus tracks from the Teenage Dream, the Complete Confection record, talk about Prism, talk about Witness, talk about Smile, talk about Katy's legacy, and rank her in the official pot pantheon. So here it is, my end of my conversation with the wonderful Daniel Daddario about Katy Perry. So Teenage Dream is, as goes without saying, a massive, monumental album. It is one of the biggest records of that year. As we said, it has five number one singles, California Girls, Teenage Dream, E.T., TGIF, Firework. It has another number three with the one that got away. The only album to have five number one singles besides Michael Jackson's bad. I mean, this that is a massive achievement. I mean, Katy Perry will live on in history for that factoid on its own. I mean, this record has five number one singles. It's like you can't even sort of quantify. What do you think, just thinking back on the year of our Lord 2010, maybe that's fun for you, maybe it's not. <laughs> why was this so big? Like, what do you think it was that made this work so well? I think that it was a second at-bat for Katy. And I think she as they say, understood the assignment. And I think for a lot of people, it was a really effective reintroduction. Expectations, granted, one of the boys had a few hits, one of them a very big hit, but expectations of her music's quality, I'll say were pretty low. I think that no one expected this and it allowed her after those first two singles being so strong, as you said, she could have converted pretty much any song on this album into a hit. I think that it was a combination of the best music on this album being really big, inclusive, open-hearted, not to get too American Studies major, but there's a degree to which this was a moment, at least in the circles in which I moved, of the last vestiges of Obama-era 
kind of optimism before like Occupy Wall Street and stuff, there was kind of a sense in the air of, wow, it feels good to be American and to feel these feelings and to walk through life. There was kind of this high stepping energy in the air in certain circles. Obviously that's not true for everyone, but in terms of the media that covered this stuff, it was a very exciting moment generally. And I think this kind of big, broad, fun music suited the moment. She found a lane that she was able to exist in really well, where if you look at her actual competition, as opposed to her obvious superiors, Gaga is getting further and further into the world of art with great success, but stuff that is intriguingly esoteric for many people. And Rihanna is such a machine releasing an album a year, which they are so strong and tool one i think the rihanna albums from this era are fantastic but there's also a little bit of an unknowability that's kind of central to her and a darkness and an an edge yes absolutely an unknowability and a sense that like you don't necessarily want to know and for katie she lets you in but just enough she's friendly in a kind of obvious but simple way there's not a lot to think about and i think (laughs) that with a lot of her peers I think of the VMAs where she won Video of the Year for Firework, right? Yeah. Other performers that night are Beyonce, who's doing Love on Top, this absolutely riveting, beautiful performance that is so musically complex. Adele, obviously, singing in this kind of manner that harkens back to previous generations. And Katy Perry is just the least complicated person on that stage. And there is a pleasure in allowing yourself to just hang out with the silliest, most fun girl at the party, even though there are more intriguing conversations you could be having. And I think that's the niche she, at her absolute peak, if we stipulate that's what Teenage Dream was, that's a niche she filled. Beautifully said. I mean, I really think that's exactly it's exactly right. And you make me think of two things, one of which is this was a huge moment, even, and, and I think Love on Top and Rihanna and everything you brought up kind of fits into this, a big moment for pure pop, right? A big moment for uncomplicated, effervescent, major key, <laughs> hooky, hooky pop music. And she was the best iteration of that. This record represented the best iteration of what was going on in pop more broadly, like the most crystalline, pure, unfettered, uncomplicated version of exactly where the entire movement of pop music had been moving to that place before we got to Lord, before we got to Lana Del Rey, before everything kind of like took a huge spin towards the less hooky, more introspective, personalized version of pop stardom. This album just came and met the moment at the moment where that was what we wanted. And you're making me think of this as not just a teenage dream, but like an American dream album in a sense. Like there's something about this record that like represents the sort of fake version of the American dream that we held up or we might hold up like if we don't think about the more complicated elements of our country that like make that totally a falsity but like even the way she celebrates California and the way that she celebrates hanging out on Mustangs there's a certain sense of like Americana to this that makes me connect it to your idea of sort of the Obama optimism of the moment like there was a feeling of belief in America or belief in the American dream and like there's something about Katie's sort of like super white super uncomplicated best version of that kind of optimism that like westward ho literally optimism with her focus on California that like makes me think of this album as something like that, like a vestige of the old wrong headed version of what we thought the American dream like was about. To me as a fan, the absolute high point of her career is the Super Bowl halftime show, which she ends by screaming into the night, God bless America.
And later that year, Trump announces for president. And I think that the great <laughs> pivot point and in her career. Her no, 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 not not remotely. But the great pivot point in her career is going as hard as she did in the 2016 election for the losing side. Yeah, right. And I think that she lost, candidly, a huge portion of her fan base that were like conservatives who believed in her vision. I think that accounts for a lot of the struggles she's had. The American dream whole concept of it is also a very Christian Protestant thing. So in many ways, this album like captures that whole feeling, a lot of elements of that. Yeah. So simultaneous to this, she's in a huge celebrity relationship with Russell Brand. They get married as is chronicled in the film. And as Dan loves to meme on Twitter, there's the very infamous moment where Russell breaks up with her while she's on the California dream store and she cries and then she gets on the lift to go on stage and then... And then puts on the smile and goes up the lift. Dan, you want to have a moment on Katy Perry cries, then goes on stage? I can't describe. I, you must watch it, at least on YouTube. She is immobile. She is weeping so hard she cannot move. She signals beyond words to her team that she's going to go on with the show, despite having just gotten a text that her marriage is over. It's a necklace that she got for her birthday from Russell the day after she got it. She thought she lost it at the venue. You have two options. They prop her body up like a mannequin and dress her and garment her, put her into the tube onto the stage. She's bent over and then she kind of has the realization I have like 10 seconds. And so she moves her head upward slowly, tilts it and puts on a big fake smile. And you can watch over the course of two seconds, the smile kind of enter her eyes like she's made herself believe it. It is an astonishing performance. And that, I think, I loved all the music off Teenage Dream, more or less. But watching that documentary, that's what converted me to, okay, I might have to stand this woman. Because the degree of self-control that takes for someone who presents as so kind of loose and goofy, she is a Zen master in some ways. And it's just the ambition. I mean, I think that that's, I mean, talk about the American dream. I mean, there was nothing that was going to stop this woman from going on that stage like hell or high water. She had worked so fucking hard to get to this moment and gone through so many iterations and everything we've talked about to this point. It is a real moment of what it is like to be one of these people. It's one of the most revealing, I think, moments in the pop cultural landscape of like what it's really like to be a pop star, not just kind of in the glossy version of it that we all have in our heads, but like you've got 20,000 people sitting in an arena that have come to see you. You've worked so hard to achieve that level of saturation and success. And like, no matter what is going on in your fucking personal life, you're going to go be teenage dream. Like yes. you're going to go do that. You're going to spin the little Candyland pinwheels on your boobs. That's another funny part of that moment yes. is when those things start spinning. Oh yes. Yes. It really is a great moment. So she and Russell break up. She releases two more smashes from a sort of follow-up expanded version of Teenage Dream, one of which is part of me, one of which is Wide Awake, that I'm just going to breeze through and sort of say, retain the essential musical and aesthetic qualities of the album, but they definitely touch on the divorce. There's a moment in part of me where she says, it's a little bit more of like a bitter, embittered breakup song. You can keep the diamond ring. I never liked it anyway. 
And then the song Wide Awake is, of course, like a patented Katy Perry, I've been through darkness and I've overcome thanks to like some sort of pseudo-spiritual revelation or bent of some sort. And that's the conclusion of the massive Teenage Dream era that sets Katy Perry up as like one of the biggest pop stars of the moment. So there's there's three years that elapse between Teenage Dream and Prism. What do you think are some of the pressures an artist like Katy Perry is under or other pop stars are under to follow up a record that gigantic? Like, what do you think she's grappling with here? Like, what are the struggles here that like an artist coming off of something so seismic is dealing with? I think Prism is such a good example of a follow-up to an album this massive because it kind of shows both struggles at once. On the one hand, if Teenage Dream had spun off two or three hits, I don't know that she ever thought she would match that record, but it's like, this better have a few huge singles. And I think that it did, not to the extent that maybe they had hoped. The other thing is, there is a feeling of, well, been there, done that and time to develop. And those two things operate at extreme cross purposes when you're simultaneously trying to find some number of huge hits, but also develop your artistry. Yeah, right. I think Prism is an interesting, complicated record and it's my sentimental favorite, but obviously those two things of feeling real pressure to continue to perform at the highest, highest level of pop chart performance and feeling like, okay, what can I do that expresses myself in a way I maybe didn't get to do before? Those I think are kind of tearing her apart. And I think that it's telling that, you know, three years is not forever, but three years is a gap. And I think it's telling that it was that long. I think it's interesting because you might've expected a breakup album out of the pop star narrative that she was coming off of. Like that could have been a direction, but in like classic Katie form. And I wonder if this is like also part of the struggle with like, how do I convey depth or maturity is like, she's not comfortable really in her music, like displaying a sense of messiness in her emotional life. Like that's something that Taylor is very, I mean, there's a lot of like people that specialize in that kind of thing. So the framing of Prism is like, I was in a dark place, but now I've seen the light come through the crack, right? Like that's kind of like the whole conceit of this record essentially, right? Like, so it's all like on the other side of the pain. And I think that that's just like a weirdly telling thing about where she saw her capabilities at because you were saying like, there's this struggle. It's like, she wants to convey depth. There's this whole public narrative that she kind of like needs to address in this music. Yes. But she finds a way to do it that sort of still trades in generalities and always comes from this place of I'm whole again now. Here's what happened to me in the past there's no stickiness there's no friction it's all very broad and easy to consume and like ultimately aiming at uplift and i think maybe that's also the religious aspect of the whole thing too it's funny that she had kind of a slow rollout of her divorce throughout the teenage dream and prism eras (laughs) right she while they're still married performs not like the movies about how she has to adjust to being in an imperfect relationship at the grammys while her wedding video is projected (laughs) behind her She does part of me, which is which is about how she is healed after a breakup because she knows that there's something irreducible that Russell will never get. And then as you say, here comes Prism, where the entire second half is about having 
found her way past tense to healing. Exactly. I agree that the songs lack the texture and bite that one might expect given everything she'd been through. I also think that at her best, Katie knows her capabilities. And I think the second half of Prism is really strong. I'm one of those fans who is like, this is her magnum opus. I think those songs are almost to a one really strong. And I also think the approach musically to have the second half of Prism be softer, gentler in the musical approach, not abrasive at all, frankly, completely unironic. Yeah, right, right, right. Suits her really nicely. I think that a world in which there were a lot of kiss-offs to Russell Brand specifically. I mean, we saw in Circle the Drain, like that's not a mode that she is comfortable in. True. Or does well at. Because I think part of what you need to do a song like that is it's ultimately something of a battle of wits, right? Like a kiss-off song has to use specific detail to kind of lacerate your enemy. This is why later Swish Swish was such a bad response to Bad Blood. But not to get ahead of ourselves, I don't think that she sees herself as having the ability to articulate in song what made Russell Brand a bad husband. Right. And I think she does have a very developed ability to articulate the ways in which self-help changed her life. Right. (laughs) I mean, you just nailed it. That's exactly right. And so I think those songs are really beautiful. I think they coexist really uneasily with the would-be singles on Prism because it is like this switch flips and it's like, and now here's side B, what I actually want to communicate to you. I mean, you're talking about this in two sides. So it's like side one has all the singles. It's Roar, it's Dark Horse, it's Birthday. It's This Is How We Do. Let's take a song like Roar, which is essentially like, a, you know, is the lead single, is a smash. I agree with what you said earlier. It's one of her best. It's kind of like a post firework song, essentially, right? I mean, it's essentially a big, broad self love and yes. right I guess there's minor references to overcoming, but there's nothing specifically divorce about this particular song. It, there's nothing divorce about it. I find it very difficult to disentangle Roar from the context in which it emerged, which was as part of the so-called Roar versus Applause chart battle, right. in which those songs were Lady Gaga's Applause and Roar were released simultaneously. Roar was easily the winner on the charts, I think it's the stronger song. And for that reason, I I think like a lot of people interpret it ultimately as just kind of being about, you know, being a pop star, being, I want to be the best. I want to be number one. I want to take on whatever comes in my way, whether that's a husband or whatever. And also to provide an avenue for everybody in the broadest possible way to apply those themes to their own life. Yes. I think I will just say, because I've been meaning to bring it up, the moment that she didn't win the Song of the Year Grammy for Roar was the moment I realized she never would win a Grammy because that to me was (laughs) the clearest possible window. It was an obvious smash that is just bulletproof as a song. It's her at her best. It was a really pretty impressive way to like end the fears of her following Tina Dream Up because it was like, yes. oh, she came back with like a single of equal success to those big hits. I remember being really impressed. And I think it's interesting because I do think it's responsive to some of the changes in music. Like 2013 was a really pivotal moment where we were moving out of that kind of pure pop EDM era. Lord's pure heroine had happened. So she somehow was able to sort of translate the themes and aesthetic of Teenage Dream into like a mid-tempo, drum machine-y, lordy almost vibe in some ways. Really smart 
song. Really smart way for her to answer those questions, I think. Lord is, to me, one of the major names in the fall of Katy Perry, not merely because- Right, exactly. At that Grammys where I walked in being like, she could win. She lost everything she was nominated to Lord, but also because I think Lord is the forerunner of the Billie Eilish era, the kind of moment we're in that the ambitions simply look different and have nothing to do with sanding yourself down to please an audience. And I think that's not a pool in which Katie really can swim. But I agree with you that musical elements of Roar suit the time well. Other songs are really discordant with the time. I think songs like Legendary Lovers are just not it. I feel like there's some songs on this first half of this record that almost feel like they're like going for Florence and the Machine and failing. Like Legendary Lovers does that for me. Take me Like these kind of sweeping, cinematic, booming. Florence and the Machine was the first thing that came to mind, and on both unconditionally, which is the second single and is kind of her first flop in a really long time. Like the song underperforms, doesn't do that well. And is also like, again, weirdly like unresponsive to the breakup. Like it's about falling in love. It's got like some of the teenage dream themes going on, but it's just like, as you said, not it. Unconditional. I do think this first half has some of her best pure pop songs. Though, like I fucking love "Birthday." Like yes. Katy Perry doing a Cheryl Lynn esque disco song. Like, come on, that is like a slam dunk. No idea why that wasn't a smash, I guess, except that the lordification of pop was in full swing at that point, and maybe those kinds of, like, you know, pristine, glistening pop singles just weren't the thing. Yeah, I feel the way you do about Walking On Air. I know it wasn't even released as a single. She performed it on SNL. But I'm just like, this is perfect, and it's more sophisticated and has more musical ideas than a lot of what hit off Teenage Dream. It really succeeds in spite of itself. Like Katy Perry doing soul house diva pop is on its face a little bit cringy, but like, man, that hook, undeniable Max Martin and Klaus Alland, notably, she turned to Robin's secret weapon for that song. And yeah, I agree. Love Walking on Air. And then there's like the couple of songs in this first half of the record that deal with the fact that hip hop has also taken a very prominent role in pop music. Yes. So we've got This Is How We Do, which I happen to really like, which is a song about just like lounging around with your girlfriends on the weekend. Really laid back, fun, unencumbered Katy Perry song. And then Dark Horse, which is the other big smash from this record, which is like a very controversial song. Let's take a beat on Dark Horse. This song is very successful, but like, how do you feel about it as a Katy Perry song? It doesn't feel like a Katy song to me. 
It's telling, I suppose, that it's her last true smash hit because it feels as though she's walking away from everything that makes a Katy Perry song, but not with a sense of purpose, as it were. Like, I don't see in it musical ideas that are intrinsic to her. I don't see much of an idea. Like, it's kind of about nothing, but not in that pleasurable way that some of her earlier singles are. I don't hate it or anything. If it's on the radio, I would happily listen to it. But I struggle with it as probably the last of her signature hits because I just think it ultimately could be anyone. And while that's true of a lot of her songs, it feels like something that she would have done earlier in her career and she's like earned the right not to do. With that said, her engaging with hip hop is necessary. It's just that she's the girl least likely to succeed in that arena. Yeah, I think that that's really the fascinating dynamism of Dark Horse is that the fact that Katy Perry did land on a successful trap single is kind of unexpected. And I do think it does have some of the hallmarks of Katie in the sense that she's willing to do whatever. I mean, we've talked about this before, but like there was a sense at this time that like the 120 BPM four on the floor sort of disco EDM indebted dance music that defined Teenage Dream, like that wasn't what was happening. Drunken Love is around the corner. Like the pop girls are moving in a direction of having to make these trap adjacent Moves. I mean, Jewels and Drugs is a song on art pop <laughs> where Gaga is attempting to do this. So it is Katie-esque in the sense that, of course, Katie was going to try to find a way to, like, put her Katie thing into the context of what was happening in pop at that particular moment. It's anti-Katie in the sense that it's almost got no hook, like just like one of the things that we've also been talking about. Uh, it's like the definitional sort of like fake out hook where it's like it builds up with this pre-chorus and then drops into this just sort of like blippy bloppy thing. It's so not the conventional structure of like how her normal pop songs work. I will say, and I'm thinking about the Super Bowl now, which we'll get to, one nice thing about it is that its centerlessness does put her voice forward kind of at center stage. If I think about the Super Bowl performance, Dark Horse is not one of the centerpiece moments of that, but her vocal on that was really strong in a way that I'm not such a blind stand that I'm going to say that she is consistently a memorably good live vocalist. And I think that no. there are moments in that song where she surprisingly really gets to belt. And that aspect of it, when performed live, I respond to. In terms of the second half of Prism, you've sung its praises. Is there like a particular song or two that you just want to like kind of highlight that you feel like really display Katie's strength in the way that you were pointing it out to us as an iteration of her that sort of dispenses with camp, dispenses with a lot of the artifice that defines a lot of her other music. Like, are there specific songs here that are just sort of emblematic of why that is such a fan favorite run of songs? Yeah, I can think of two. I'll start with the album Closer, which is By the Grace of God. Love this song, have to say. It's a gorgeous song. And I think it's probably the most directly personal she's ever been on mic. And dark. I mean, it's about suicide, right? She talks about contemplating either 
ending her life or receding from life, depending on how you interpret it. But just a time post-divorce when she felt so despondent that she felt as though she could not go on. And finding within herself the strength to carry on. This is probably the most effectively she's ever deployed her faith on record. I think that it's actually done in a very lovely way, a uh, very relatable way. There's a kind of shift in the song from very gentle and delicate singing to kind of a build. There's a sort of triumph in it, but it's a very conditional triumph because it's like, I've overcome and like, look how fucking bad what I overcame was. Yeah. That I think is really powerful. It's what you said. It's like her most revealing song and her most tender vocal performance, I think, ever. Tender is the perfect word. I kind of expected this song to have a bit more of a life. It was obviously not a candidate to be a single. I know she performed it at the Grammy Awards right after the Super Bowl, but I kind of expected it in its moment to be discovered in that all too well way where fans elevate a song. I don't know that it really has, but that's a really good one. I'd also point to Double Rainbow, which I think just has some really beautiful, delicate singing built around a reference that I think falls just short of cliche. Like, I don't think Double Rainbow Rainbow is in common enough parlance that we could say this is just her being easy. <laughs> yeah. For once, I totally agree with Rich's critique generally, but I think in this case, it's actually <laughs> carefully chosen and nicely deployed and not labored in a way that she can sometimes be. Because Double Rainbow is a song about finding love after being sad and the first flush of being excited about being able to have someone you feel like is congruent with you, sees you for who you are. And I think that's a very nicely deployed metaphor. I think that those are really interesting songs to point out and like could have pointed towards an interesting path forward. Like there's a version of a Katy Perry record that's like smaller and perhaps like maybe even like less maximalistly ambitious, but more simple that I wonder what that might be like, but that isn't what we got. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> I always have trouble sort of characterizing the success of Prism for people because Prism is a big record. There's two huge number one smashes, Roar and Dark Horse, but there's also like a series of songs that are beginning to show that the wheels are coming off of Katie's commercial bulletproofness. Unconditionally underperforms, birthday underperforms, this is how we do underperforms. Like coming off of an album like Teenage Dream, which in Toto, the era had seven top three hits and six of them were number one or whatever, something crazy like that, or eight, whatever it was. Yeah. This was way more like she was living hit to hit, right? Like it felt again, like something could work, it could not work. We were out of the Imperial phase. Like, how do you think Katie comes out of this album? Like, where is her pop career post Prism? I remember this era really vividly because this was, I think, the first of her eras in which I identified as a strong fan of hers. Yeah. And I felt emotionally as it wound down that 
we got out alive. Right, like just by the skin of your teeth. I think that Dark Horse converting into a number one hit pretty late in the game after a couple other single attempts did not connect was kind of a saving grace in terms of the way she was identified at that point as someone for whom success was part of the formula. In complete seriousness, we can't talk about Katie without talking about the Grammys thing. And I really mean it in a non-facetious way when I'm like, I think she got beat fair and square. I think that Lord was, and all the other winners at that ceremony were the people that the energy was with. I also think her trucking out to the Grammys and going home empty handed was unfortunate for her and for fans of hers because it was kind of like, well, at this point, we are pretty clearly post peak and we're not going to receive this sort of recognition. She performed Dark Horse at that ceremony and it was a Salem witch trials themed performance where it ended with her being burned at the stake. And I remember kind of thinking, oh my God. I feel like we're back to throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. And I feel like we walked out of the prism era with some inherent confidence having been stripped away. I suppose it was inevitable that she would not always be living in the kind of headspace that she was with Teenage Dream. Also, she had been through a lot in her life. But I do think that Prism, which is my favorite of her albums, as I say, also led to a bit of confusion by the end of the era about who she was and what she stood for. I think the Super Bowl gave it back to her, but only for a minute. The problem is, and I think this is where Prism was like a real issue, even though it was like a half success, is that what was successful on Prism was a song that could have been on Teenage Dream, more or less, Roar, that was basically doing the same thing, and a true novelty hit like a true fluke essentially a lark in dark horse right everything that was like the meat of like what could have been paths forward for her didn't quite connect you know what i mean yeah even a song like unconditionally which like is dealing with some of the themes of teenage dream is attempting to like recontextualize it musically there's toe dipping on this record into like where could Katy perry move as a mature artist like how could Katy perry still be a successful star in a second decade of her career right like beyond just the initial rush but that that stuff didn't really click in a broad way. It clicked with her fans, but it didn't click yes. outside of that. And that's where the conundrum comes in because it's like, okay, we were able to run off some fumes of what was successful before, but everything that we did that was sort of meant to be a tiptoe outside of that didn't really work. And I think that that's a really tricky place for her to leave. And I understand the confusion of that where it's like the sort of smoke show of like, this was a successful album. There were big hits from it. It sold pretty well. Katy Perry still seemed like a centrist major pop star and yet i can see how her and team maybe exited this era and were like hmm i'm not exactly sure where this should go next exactly i think that it's likely that she felt more creatively fulfilled than she ever had by the second half of prism at the same time like they didn't even really try to promote that like none of those songs were singles and they just coexist uneasily with a bunch of stabs at stuff my grand theory of witness was that similar to a lot of people's that we all kind of went crazy after trump was elected and i think it's very responsive to that But in a world where that didn't happen, I still think the album After Prism would have been some kind of misfire because I think that they managed 
to turn the Prism era into a success, but it's almost in spite of itself. And I think that as we move through the sort of interim period between Prism and Witness, it's like you can't express the amount of things that change in pop music and in broader It's Like the need for Katy Perry just kind of vanishes on some level as the sort of Lord and Halsey and that whole era of pop sort of sweeps in and becomes everything. It's like Katy Perry feels completely obsolete even by like 2014 or 15. And if you have somebody like Taylor who's finding a way to make maximalist pop music that still feels hefty in like a way that Katy Perry has like struggled to be seen in that particular way. She's kind of being iced out in every corner. There's just nothing she can do. Yes. I want to move us to witness. I know we have to touch on a few things in the interim that you've already flagged for us, one of which is the Super Bowl and the other of which is her all in for Hillary Clinton thing. Why do you find both of those things super important to the narrative of this? I find it very poignant, her performance at the Super Bowl, because it simultaneously is the obviously biggest moment of her career. The crowning of her, not merely as someone who pulled off, to my eye, a very successful halftime show, obviously numbers don't lie but i also think it was a run through of all of her hits that she did in that beautiful katy perry way where it was fun loving everyone had fun with it even detractors could agree it was a great piece of entertainment it also is kind of her last act as the kind of pop star that she was right it concludes the katy perry megastar experiment it's like it couldn't have even happened two years later correct they wouldn't have chosen her correct So she's in the same conversation as Beyonce, Madonna, Bruno Mars, now Rihanna. And it also feels like a historical accident in a funny way. Yeah, <laughs> it does. <laughs> That's so funny. I do think there's a moment in the halftime show where I believe it's when she's transitioning from California girls to teenage dreams. They're either ushering on or off the sharks to do the, to, I think they're ushering the sharks off. And she kind of like bends her head down and she looks into the camera and there's just this look in the midst of all this froth and fun of just absolute extreme intensity in her eyes where it's just like, mm. she knew she had to nail it, which is stating the obvious, mm. but mm-hmm. you see in her this absolute fire to perform and she got it right. She nailed it. That made me a fan very happy. The Hillary stuff, I think, is just interesting because I think she was among the very, very few celebrities who was absolutely most closely identified with the Hillary campaign. I mean, she spoke at the DNC. She was out there for Hillary. And not only did Hillary losing, I think, send her into an existential crisis, as it did for many people, she also staked her fame on keeping people on board despite doing this. And I think a lot of people who really, really liked Katy Perry also really, really liked voting for Donald Trump. Not the majority, but just- The casual listener. She enters the witness era not merely in a state of confusion about her career Mm. and the state of the country, but also having staked out a position that a lot of casual fans did not join her on. Very interesting. I'm so intrigued by that idea. It's almost like the way that being seen as a loser in a political campaign, like she got the stench of that. Oh, absolutely. I think so. I really think so. And I think that everything she did post-election amplified that. And rather than turning the page, which might have been helpful, she leaned into this idea that she had undergone a sort of national trauma. 
I'm trying to avoid doing too much Taylor Katie talk. Another theory of witness I have is that she was trying to record the album everyone said Taylor Swift should record. If you remember that time, a big topic was Taylor Swift was silent on the election. When will she speak? Right. And Katie was like, here I am. I have some thoughts. Oh, uh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So she returns in 2017 with this record witness that has become like a bit of a laughing stock, like in the sort of pop cultural conversation. It's sort of like a go-to when people talk about albums that are flops, essentially. I mean, like it's upheld with a series of iconic flops as like one of the ones that everybody points to, whether that is Bionic, whether... <laughs> <laughs> whether that's Britney Jean, whether whatever it is, this is the album that essentially ends Katy Perry's commercial run. If Prism was like beginning to have the wheels fall off, this is the record where the wheels fully, fully came off. And I think we've set up a lot of reasons why that is. The state of pop music, the demands and like what people wanted from pop stardom, the ambitions of pop stardom and how that changed, the incentives of pop stardom and how that changed, what people wanted from their pop stars. I mean, if Katy Perry represented the most glistening version of what pop stardom could be, now we're dealing with a community of pop fans that like wants to be as close to the ground with their pop stars as possible. They want people that they like feel like are revealing things to them 20 24 seven, whether that's on social media or through their music, we're getting into Billy, we're getting into all of this stuff. So let's just like talk about Witness on Mass. Like what is this record? What is she trying to do here on an aesthetic and thematic level? And like, why is it such a misfire commercially? I think she's trying to bolt together reflections on the state of her personal life over time while being really resistant to get too specific. Yeah, right. Reflections in the most general sense on the state of politics in the world and a couple singles. It's a really uneasy mixture. Among other things, I don't think she has a keen enough vocabulary to discuss politics the way I think she wants to, which is why I think a lot of the commentary on politics is misdirected or too vague. Like, where do you see that? Are you talking about Change of the Rhythm in particular? Change of the Rhythm is what I'm most specifically thinking of. I think that Change of the Rhythm was the lead single. It was obviously intended as a statement. And the statement is something along the lines of like, we all live in a bubble and we're too comfortable and complacent and we don't see what's really going on without really identifying what's going on. She attempted in various live performances to really tie it to Trump, and I, it didn't clear the bar for me. It was heavy-handed. Yeah. It's interesting, because I, I actually, I like Chain to the Rhythm. I agree with you that it's not necessarily, like, working as a protest song necessarily, but I feel like it's one of the more successful hooks and, like, grooves of the record. To be clear, I like it as a song. I just think yeah. she put it forward as the lead single, announcing that the genre she was now working <laughs> in was called Purposeful Pop. She really put herself in a corner there because this record isn't really a political record ultimately for yes. the most part, right? I mean, it's a kind of miscommunication of what she was trying to do. There are political gestures on multiple songs. This is obviously the only really overt one. Yeah. But I also think for her, politics is self-care. And a lot of the songs are fairly depressing songs about breakups she's undergone, in which she tries to extrapolate some grander lesson. Right. Like I said, she's not someone who works in detail, and when she does, it really stands out. And these songs are just brutally vague. We are all just looking. 
Also, just while we're talking about the music, her voice gets really lost here. It's such a produced record. She clearly threw everything at the wall in terms of production. There are a lot of people she brings in. She brings in Purity Ring. Dr. Luke is now off the table. Right. This is important. We should highlight this. Like one of the big shifts here is that Dr. Luke is accused of sexual misconduct by Kesha. So he is no longer a viable collaborator for her on this record for the first time in her successful albums. She's working without him. And also absent here is someone that we haven't given enough shine to, I think, which is Bonnie McKee, co-writer of California Girls, Teenage Dream, Roar, like clearly a secret weapon of Katie's on a lot of these hooks is also gone here. So we're really in new territory with the collaborators. Yeah. And I just think it's very much show me what a Katy Perry song sounds like. Show me. Like she is asking her collaborators to kind of find her sound is the sense I get not knowing, not having been in the room. She's just lost in this labyrinth, so to speak, this mind maze, as one of her uh, <laughs> songs is titled. That song. Oh, God. It's a mind It's such a disconnect because not merely is her personality totally lost and not just the upbeatness, but just any sense of who she is, but it's also being sold as this excavation of where Katy Perry is in 2017 in a way we have never seen before. Right. And she seems farther away than ever before. It's really paradoxical. I actually found myself kind of moved by what she was trying to do here. I mean, in a way, it kind of gets at what I was saying about Prism, which is like, okay, Prism skips over the pain and just like goes for the healing or whatever. This record, I feel like, and I could be wrong, but when I listened to it this time, I was like, I was like, okay, like Katie is trying to let us in on something darker about herself like she's trying to give us a more fully fleshed out like version of her emotional life and as you said she lacks the skill and vocabulary to like do so with any sort of effect the other thing is you know how i was sort of saying like we never knew Katy perry outside of working with these specific pop masters on her work. Witness is answering the question for the first time since she became successful of like, what is a Katy Perry song without these people? I mean, Max Martin is present here, so that should be said. But somehow he doesn't even come through with like the bulletproof hooks that we're normally used to with him for the most part on his records. So what is Katy Perry without those things? And the answer is kind of hard to listen to. I mean, that's the answer that like I come to on this. These songs are sludgy and like yes. really cliche laden and like like, Katy Perry doing anything other than brightness with massive hooks really doesn't churn. I felt like the pacing, like when I was five songs into this album, this listen through, I was like, I feel like I've been listening to this album for five hours. And it is attempting to answer the Lord Lana thing. Like you think of a song like Hey, 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 or like these like kind of slow, darker, like drum machine-y songs. I can be zen and I can be destroyed. Yeah, smell like a rose and I pierce like a thorn. Yeah, karate chopping the cliches and norms all in a dress. I appreciate that she's trying to deepen, to give us something different, to figure out what she could do that isn't just in the formula of firework and roar. But as she would say, it's such an epic fail. <laughs> it's not promising. And it made me feel like 
honestly, and like I know that this might sound harsh, and obviously I've been accused of being harsh about Katie on this show a lot, and like whatever, but like it made me feel like Katy Perry, and I think she's very talented and whatever, and she's got a lot of moxie and ambition. But I kind of think she also got really lucky. <laughs> like I really do think she's the kind of pop star that was in the right place at the right time, and she got put with the right people. And I'm not saying she didn't bring tons of stuff to those songs, and I'm not trying to undermine her success. I really am not trying to say that. But I do think that this album proves that without all of the other things in place to make this work, what is there? Like, what is there? That question is still unanswered to this day. I'm going to get my stand card revoked because I actually completely agree with you. And I'd like to add on to that, which is the poignancy and the essential tragedy of Katy Perry speaking as someone who really sees in her something special is that she did get hit by lightning. Basically, she got yeah. astonishingly lucky. She met the moment, but she was very lucky. And I think what she took from that experience was like, I see the matrix. I understand how to be a pop star. Yeah, right. And I think that what we see time and again is that she doesn't always have good instincts. And that's fine. You don't have to. But I think she thinks she has great instincts. You do kind of have to. You have to to be one of these tops. I think to be a pop star at the level of a Madonna, you know what I mean? That yes. that has a 25-year career. You damn do have to have good instincts every single time. I agree with you. And I think that's why Katie has fallen off is because I think you don't release an album like Witness being what it is if you aren't confident the audience is going to follow you. And that was a bad bet. I think that there are songs in the sludgy mode on Witness that work somewhat. Deja Vu. Deja Vu, yes. I also think of Save as Draft, which I think yeah. the kind of fundamental appeal of Save as Draft to me is that she sounds frustrated with the song in a way that I think is really productive. Like she sounds angry at the song. And I think mm -hmm. that that's a tension that works for me. A lot of it just flat out doesn't. And I think that that is the reason why she is not enjoying a Madonna style career or a Taylor Swift style career for that matter, or a Beyonce style career. Because I think that she necessarily needed to develop on Teenage Dream, but she made such a hard turn assuming that people would follow her and they wouldn't. And granted her hands were somewhat tied. I don't know what she could have done that could have maintained Teenage Dream style success, but I don't think she knows either. And I think that's a big problem. I think that there was no way. I think the bottom line is she was meant to be an artist that captured a specific moment and there's not much else there for her to do musically on that level of success. I don't see it. I can't think of what she should have done here that would have answered the questions that needed to get answered. Like she was a pop star for a very, very specific moment where what she brought to the table was needed and her limitations were minimized. Yes. That was what 2010 was. She met the moment and she had the right people to help her realize the totality of what she could do. This record to me just revealed that there are limitations to Katy Perry 
Harry's ability to be a centrist, interesting force in the pop music landscape beyond the moment that she met. But I will say on a lighter note that there are some things about Witness that I did enjoy on this go-around. As I mentioned, I really appreciated that she took a big swing, right? Like, okay, I'm never going to be mad at a pop star that like goes for something. And she needed to, right? Like she needed to try something else. Yes. She couldn't work with Luke again, so that's in and of itself. But Prism was the kind of half success we were talking about. So she really had to do something. And this is what she came up with. Most of it doesn't work. Loose thoughts, right? Okay. Yes. Some of my less pleasant loose thoughts is on the song, Into Me You See, one of her prettiest vocal performances. Why the fuck does she say the words open sesame in the chorus of that song? She goes, into me you see, you broke me open, open sesame. Yeah. Come on, who did? Who let that through the process? I'm sorry, that was just- It's a, brutal. That is brutal, Dan. But Dan, that is the lowest point of her career. She's singing this like tender ballad and then she literally, someone let her say, open sesame. And to me you see, you broke me wide open, open sesame. But, Brighter note, Pendulum, one of my favorite Katy Perry songs. I think Pendulum is really strong. I think Pendulum is gorgeous and... Uplifting, which nothing else on this album is. It's the best <laughs> of Church Girl Katy Perry, right? It's a gospel song, albeit... Katy Perry gospel song, 100 Yeah, it's not the songs that she probably heard in church growing up, but it's that uplift, that comfort with cliche. Yes. And that ability to transform a cliche through belief in it into like, you know what? I do find this inspiring. And honestly, the place that it comes on the album, you really fucking need it. Because you're like, oh, oh my, my God, God, I've been through this journey with this woman <laughs> and we're both so miserable at this point. And then that hits and you're like, it's going to be okay. Yeah. It's the bound two of this album or whatever. <laughs> yes. You go on this chaotic journey and then you have this ray of light emerge. Yeah. Don't try and I'm touched by the way that she earnestly sinks her teeth into these types of uplifting songs. Like in a way, some of her instincts are good, which is that like she is meant to make these just sort of like broad uplifting songs. She really believes what she's saying on them. We need to take two beats, thumbs up or thumbs down to Swish Swish. Swish Swish Bish. Thumbs in the middle trending down. I actually think Nikki singing, I already despise you, is like <laughs> really beautiful. <laughs> But it's impossible to see outside the context that it's obviously intended as a response to Taylor Swift. I don't think it gets there. I did like when she performed it on the Witness live stream. Oh my God, the Witness live stream. How could we have escaped this conversation without the Witness live stream? She changed Don't You Come For Me to God Bless You On Your Journey because <laughs> it was at the end of her 96 hours of personal growth. But no, thumbs in the middle and thumbs <laughs> outright down on Bon Appetit. I was going to say, like, where are you at? I actually weirdly don't mind Bon Appetit. I mean, it's a good idea to team up with Migos. It's just, it's a good idea for anyone but Katy Perry. 
I am sad that we're back to the faux provocations, like that sort of whole thing. I was like, I really, really don't need that. And also I'm sad that the like hook with the beat doesn't come till the second chorus, like too much waiting for that. When that beat finally drops, like I'm like, oh, this could have been good. Cause I'm all that you I don't know. Migos awkward. I don't know. All right. So as we said, Witness is a canonical flop. Truly one of the ones we always turn to in the dictionary next to the word flop is Witness. And Katie's career, correct me if I'm wrong, has never recovered from the lack of commercial success from this record. She's a huge pop star. She has her stint judging American Idol, which is a big deal. She still feels like a big a-listy pop figure, I guess. That seems true, right? Like, she still feels like an A-listy pop girl. I think she's an A-list celebrity and an A-list yeah. pop star. I think it's just she's not an A-list productive recording artist. Like, I think that right. everything about her is famous. Her personal life is covered very closely. She's always on TV. It's just that if she releases a new album, it doesn't do anything. Well, she released this album Smile in 2020. That proves that point. I don't need to speak hypothetically. Yeah. I'm giving us two minutes on Smile. Anything you want to say about Smile? Two is appropriate. I think the <laughs> problem with Smile among many is that there was some market confusion after Witness to my mind where she was kind of like randomly releasing singles. Yeah. Not attached to anything. Like Never Really Over would have been a great lead single for an era. Love that song. It's never really Not that I think it would have converted Smile into a hit, but it's kind of this haphazard assemblage of some stuff she'd already released, some stuff that really doesn't work, a lot of songs about crying. And then my official prediction is that it ends with kind of a gesture towards Nashville to my ear with the song, What Makes a Woman. And I think that's pretty concretely where we're headed. Could spend your whole life It was good that she put out an album because I actually do think, <laughs> this sounds so pretentious, I think she's an albums artist in this way, which is that I think she's an old style pop star, not someone who can organically gen up excitement about her music just by dropping a hot track. I think she kind of true, needs true, true, the true. girding structure of this era is about this, even though her eras have gotten less and less functional. Yeah. I do think she needs that. And I kind of think if she were to release music again, she should do so in an album that reasserts herself in a pretty clear way. I think it's up to her to figure out what that is. I think you're so right about that. And if she's not going to have hits, there needs to be another sort of idea behind it that makes it intriguing to people. Yeah. Because like, I don't see Katy Perry as someone that's going to come back and have big number one smash singles again. No. But like, perhaps maybe she can stumble into some sort of fan service that feels rewarding to anybody that still cares about her. I could see that yes. happening. I want to say, never really over fantastic song really great song katie's best single since the prism era no question about it i agree i think it's a great way to kick off smile i agree to me it always felt like they had put all these singles out they needed to get an album out it was the middle of the pandemic they were like bitch we gotta drop something some a r person just threw together what they thought were the 10 best songs that had either been floating around or that they had recorded it as you said it's there's no cohesive concept to it there's no idea of an era i think you're so right that she chose on that structure and like without that what I mean that album felt like a total not event I mean that album made witness at least feel like it made some sort of impact there's a lot of people out there that have zero idea 
Correct. That she did that, that she released that. There's not the ambition here anymore even, which is fine. But then without the producers and without the ambition and without the big ideas, who is Katie? Good question. And I want to see her figure that out in a forward-looking way. I'm, I'm very excited that Vegas has been what it is for her. But I hope that in the years ahead, we get some kind of forward-looking vision because I do think her pop stardom is over, but I don't think her public life is over. And I think that there's stuff she can do that would make fans happy. My last question before we move on to the Pantheon is, I touched on this a little bit with Teenage Dream, but I think, you know, Katie was someone that was critically savaged at her peak. Even when she was at her most successful, even if you go back and look at reviews of Teenage Dream, they are very negative. Nobody really heard that album for the first time in the music critic world and identified even that there was like six great singles on this album. So do you agree with the idea that Katie is looked upon almost weirdly more fondly now than she was at her peak on mass in some ways? Like I get that yes. she's not successful in that level, but I think somehow with optimism seeping through our culture and and the way we talk about women and their music and like respecting artists who work in the pop space despite rockist ideas of like what makes credible music worthwhile, whatever. I think Katie, in a weird way, in terms of like how we think back on her peak eras anyway, is more respected and thought highly of now more so than she was during the actual peak, weirdly enough. I totally agree. The way people talk about it and her role in it, it's less about anything that changed with her and more just about the ways in which we talk about music changing. I think that- right. It's just seen as something that has an inherent seriousness of purpose and importance in a way that it wasn't then. And I also think people have an appreciation for just how much hard work it takes to look that effortless in a way that yes. maybe we didn't back then. I think there's obviously so much more transparency between the celebrity and the fan that I think people have a pretty sophisticated understanding now of how hard the parries of the world work. Yeah. And it is, in her case, all about hard work. So yeah, I do. I think that if anything, relative to the rest of her career, I actually think Teenage Dream is slightly overrated now. I agree with you. In the sense that it's now spoken of as she can't came down to this planet to deliver her one statement. She did mission accomplished. And I think that there's good stuff throughout her discography. And I think that Teenage Dream isn't as cohesive as people remember it as being. I think when people talk about the album Teenage Dream, they're talking about the song Teenage Dream. A hundred percent. I think you're so right about that. And I'll just conclude by saying, again, as the resident whipping post for being <laughs> mean to Katy Perry, I am nostalgic for the era where her pop stardom worked. I find myself missing pop stars that could just be big, glossy, super maximalist, hooky entities that just like made fucking euphoric smashes about falling in love. Like I just yes. think we don't have enough of it anymore. I miss it. I'm sick of the internalized. I'm sick of Lord. Like we've had our fill of that. Artists like Dua Lipa yes. are hearkening back because I think there is a craving for the kind of pop star that Katy Perry was. The kind of like glitzy, surfacy, super dynamite hooks up beat, dance music, all of that kind of stuff that she was really fucking good at for like a good couple of years there. There's nostalgia for that. I have nostalgia for that. I miss it. When I was listening to Teenage Dream, I was like, this might have well been 500 years ago as far as it feels in terms of what's happened in the world and how pop music has changed. I'm nostalgic for it. I want it back. You know, there's affinity within the gay community for artists like Kim Petras and people that are kind of like doing stuff like that. And then on a mainstream level, the fact that Dua Lipa's album was so successful I think this is where pop music is penduluming <laughs> mm -hmm. back 
to now is like to Katy Perry. And, and I think there is a great affection because of how little there has been in recent years. I think that's really helped her legacy in some ways. Like we really miss her and she is the emblem of that period. Yes. In a weird way, like Gaga is a bigger star. Rihanna's a bigger star. They've had longer careers. They're more successful. But when you think of like that early 2010s moment in pop music, right? It's Katie. That's who you think of. There is something really beautiful about, beautiful to me, <laughs> about Katy Perry through force of will, making herself into one of the biggest stars in the world with the toolkit that she had. And I think she has made the most of it. Look, I look back on 2010 and 2011 as a really good time in my life. And yes, I think same. that's true of a lot of old millennials. <laughs> yeah. Having her still around is a reminder of that kind of optimism. And I think through it all, like her ups and downs, her witness eras, her smile eras, I'll always have that nostalgic tie to her. It really suits that her greatest song is about the feeling of nostalgia for something lost, Teenage Dream, because mm. I think that's how a lot of us feel about her. Beautifully said. Thank you. All right, so let's talk about the Pantheon. Now, I have essentially, in my mind, ranked this woman on the Pantheon. Not in my mind. I've essentially, on this show, yes. ranked her in the Pantheon. I constantly bring her up as the emblematic Tier 3 pop star. Yeah, she epitomizes Tier 3. Okay, so we're not going to have a fight about this. If your show had existed at the beginning of the Prism era, that was when she was knocking on the door of Tier 2. Like, when Roar dropped, you could have convinced me that Tier 2 was in her immediate future. Yeah, right. But no, she defines Tier three she defines it yeah like she's dictionary definition it doesn't need to be complicated like that's just her and i think that it's a comfortable place for her to be she should be fucking happy in tier three i mean no knocks to that i mean most artists will never have the success that katie perry has had and like i'm glad that you're not fighting me on it because i really don't think that there's any way not to. no i mean the katie perry fan at least me feels in 2022 as though he has been through a long journey and a battle. Who am I living for vibes? And uh, <laughs> and we- A mind maze. A mind maze of sorts. And we kind of arrive at this place of acceptance and yeah. knowing your limitations is a good thing. And I think right now that also describes where Katie is. And I think she would be happy to know that she's tier three. Just so everybody's clear, one to three albums, at least half a decade that spawned numerous hit singles, say five to 10 genuine smash hits, literally exactly. Yeah. One album that had a major impact with many hit songs. <clears throat> defined or helped define a very specific moment. Yes. Is still very well known, meaningful to anyone who was prime age when they were having their moment. Yes. Anecdote, Dan. Yes. I went to dinner with a woman who has two Gen Z kind of 15 year old daughters. Yes. And I was grilling them about all of our pop stars. I was just yes. like, what do you think of Beyonce? What do you think of Britney? What do you think of da 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 And when I brought up Katie, they were the most effusive about her of any of our pop stars. They were wow. like, oh my God, Katie, I grew up on her. I love her. She's everything. Like Amazing. I used to listen to Teenage Dream in the car with my mom when I was five, six years old, like blah, 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 blah. They were in for Rihanna too, but they like slammed Beyonce, old lady, hate her song, blah, blah, wow. blah, blah, blah. Like Britney, they know mostly from the conservatorship, you sure. know, whatever. It was just interesting to me how effusive they were. Anyway, yes. BP Arsenal of hits they can still tour on, obviously, continues to make critically regarded work. No, or <laughs> work that still resonates and sells. No, it's fine. No. Uh, release an album today <laughs> would be something most pop fans would be interested in hearing. I think Smile 
got fucked with pan like i think if- i think smiles a special case yeah if katie announced a new album pop fans would be curious to hear it could possibly want some successful vegas residency we have the answer yes. to that one could still tour large theaters amphitheaters or possibly arenas. where if katie perry launched a tour is she still touring arenas you think at this time i think if she's not touring arenas she doesn't tour because i don't think her image could stand up to doing a tour that wasn't an arena tour even like a radio city kind of big theater tour i just i have a hard time seeing her agreeing to play anything less than msg if she's in new york i just do but she's she staged successful theater show in vegas yeah but the story on that is that it's to make her life easier so that she can hang out with her kid like i do think she is not without a healthy ego that we'll see in the years ahead but i don't think she tours if it's not an arena okay I think she could still maybe do, oh, I don't know. But I think the answer to that might be that she kind of just only does Vegas from now on. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But I don't know. I think if she puts out a new record, they might send her out on tour. Yeah. I'd be really curious how they would book that tour. Genuinely. Because I, I feel like she's right on the line. Like I could see her like pulling off like arenas in most major markets. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, like maybe she wouldn't. Anyway. She fits all the criteria perfectly. Last question, Dan, before we end our marathon, the <laughs> Katy Perry marathon here. Underrated Katy Perry song that we haven't spoken about that we could send the show out on. So within, or maybe I should say beyond the swamp of Witness is this bonus track that doesn't fit at all. But I actually think is this really nice and poetic statement about the other side of the coin of Witness, which is her kind of feeling stuck, which is the song called Act My Age, which is classic Katy Perry. There's some new age stuff in it about how time was made up to control us, which is her Marianne Williamson coming out. But there's also just this sentiment that she doesn't want to be held back by the way people perceive her. And she feels as though she's still the same person on the inside that she was years ago. And I think it's a sentiment that I can relate to. I also think that it's an interesting way to develop and actually comment on what's going on in her life without being confessional in a way that she's not comfortable with. And I also think it's a great song. It's really fun. It's birthday to me in that way where it has like a nice little springy beat to it. And I feel like in a good mood when I listen to it. So that is the hidden gem of Witness. I completely agree. I love this song for all the reasons you said. The best Katy Perry songs do sing from this wide-eyed naivete of youth. That is kind of one of her ace cards, right? Like we talked about that with Teenage Dream. We've talked about that with The One That Got Away. Katie's broad strokes perspective of naivete that like sort of originates with her being in this super sheltered upbringing and then sort of popping out and seeing the world in that specific way is like what makes most of her best songs tick to me. The simplicity of that view, her ability to see things in that way. And this song is about that. So I completely agree. I love Act My Age. Let's go out on Act My Age. Dan Dodario, thank you so, so, so much for being here for this monumental moment in Pop Pantheon history. This was a dream come true. A teenage dream. A teenage dream come true, baby. I'm so flattered you thought of me. And thanks a lot. Happy New Year, everyone. Katie Katz and haters alike.
All right, there you have it once and for all. Pop Pantheon, Katy Perry, a tier three superstar. The judgment is rendered. Thank you so, so much to the incredible Daniel D'Addario for being such a fantastic guest. Thank you so much to the wonderful Russ Martin for everything he did to make this show this week, every week this year, to make this podcast as incredible as it has been. I really can't say enough good things about what he's done for us. So thank you so much to Russ Martin. Thank you to Seth Kelly for his help editing this episode. Thank you to all of you for listening to Pop Pantheon. I'm so grateful to everybody. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod, me at DJ L O U I E X I V. Check out the Spotify playlist for this episode in the show notes of this episode. And join our Patreon, please. Pop Pantheon All Access. You can get that at patreon.com slash pop pantheon. And as a little treat before we get out of here this week, I'm going to include a little snippet right now of our new Patreon episode featuring Owen Myers, our guest from our Spice Girls episode and from our Charlie XCX Crash episode, where the two of us are breaking down everything about SZA's new album, S.O.S. If you enjoy this, click the link in the show notes of this episode or go to patreon.com slash poppantheon to subscribe and hear the whole thing. You know what's so interesting, too, that I think you were starting to touch on that I want to dive into a little bit is the sort of omnivorous musical palette at play mm. here. There's a lot of unclassifiable genre work going on yeah. in the production, and I find it interesting in the context of a term that we might all find kind of dated but that like used to mean something which is the idea of pbr and b i don't know if you remember that terminology oh man not pbr and b but i i know that this is bad but just rock with me for a second (laughs) there is this interesting space of Mm. hip-hop and sort of indie aesthetics crossing over right like this sort of idea of what's the space between like indie music and R&B and hip hop aesthetics, right? And I think that in some ways this record is like playing in the center of those two things. And I think SZA occupies a space that's kind of in the center of those things too, where she's like a part and parcel of hip hop culture in some ways, but she also feels, and she literally has Phoebe Bridgers on this fucking album. She also feels part of that world as well. And I think some of the musical choices on here represent a sort of unbridled or unencumbered experience with genre. Like I just kept thinking to myself, what are these songs? How would I classify these songs? Yes, some of them mm. feel like more straightforward R&B exercises. Some of them feel like, as you mentioned, kind of like almost Post Malone, Drake rap exercises yeah. of some sort. But then you get certain songs on here. And I think the most obvious example being F2F, where you're right. like, what the fuck is this? It's like a Avril Lavigne, pop punk, little country. There's a real interesting facileness with lots of different aesthetic guises in the production that is really striking on this record way more to me than it was on Control. Are there other iterations of that here that feel pertinent for us to mention that, that it jumped out at you? Well, first of all, F2F was like the track I loved the most. You know, yeah, I grew same. up as a kind of an emo kid and I had pink hair and, yeah. you know, that scratches a very specific itch to me. It's very nostalgic. And so unexpected from her. I mean, I was like, it's why really is this unexpected. good? <laughs> I was like, why? 
why is this good? It's so crazy. Well, the crazy thing, and I touched on this when I spoke to her briefly because it is my favorite track. And yeah. she said the song actually started off as a Lizzo collaboration. Lizzo had a verse oh. on the track. And you can hear SZA said she kept some of Lizzo's vocals in the post-chorus. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's Lizzo, kind oh, of wow. uncredited as a little feature. Which I love, and I fuck him because I miss you is mm, an amazing so, <laughs> line. So fucking unhinged in the best way possible. Yeah, that's some real talk also. Get a rise out of watching you fall. Like, damn. Wow. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I think when we're talking about kind of that pie chart intersections between indie and R&B, like for me, I think you're right to mention the wave of the... Solange, Dev, Sky, How to Dress Well mm-hmm. moment of 2012. I guess another thing I'd throw in the mix is Frank Ocean's Blonde, right? Yes. Which big. is a record that had Alex G on, I think had Tobias Gesso Jr. on. Mm-hmm. And completely by chance, I was listening to Blonde the past weekend. Not that I need an excuse to listen to Blonde, but I was listening to Blonde last weekend and I was just like, this is an indie rock record, you know? And I realized mm-hmm. it's so much more with a little distance and maybe haven't listened to it for a year or so and i think that scissor loves frank and frank loves scissor you know this kind Mm -hmm. of cult legend of a frank remix of the weekend that never came out and kind of has only been heard in snippets there was rumors that frank was gonna do a verse on Joni, the scissor soundcloud track that wound up not being on the album so there is kind of this like fan fascination with the two of them and they love each other to bits. And I wouldn't be surprised if a little of Blonde's aesthetic, and it's really inventive to me, merge of that DIY indie with mm-hmm. the more kind of R&B hip hop didn't find its way onto SOS somewhere. I think the Phoebe song is great. I yes, think I that it really shocked me so much at first <laughs> that I was yeah. hearing Phoebe Bridges on a Scissor album that I didn't know what to make of it but the song grew on me so much and i think phoebe kind of met scissor where scissor is it's some of the songwriting and phoebe's verse is really really evocative and is plain spoken in a way that's actually refreshing to hear phoebe standing alone at the ludlow that's so fucking boring Really plain spoken, but really evocative and immediate in terms of phrase and the songwriting that is really special to me. The songwriting overall on this record, I think, is a even giant leap forward from control. And I'm yeah. like tempted to pull out like lyrics that really touched me, but I'm also tempted to pull out lyrics that are just- Someone to hear the rest of the episode, click the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash pop pantheon.